RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 292, Melora. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Ken Ray. And I'm John Champion. Each week, we watch an episode of Star Trek, taking it apart for meanings, morals, and messages, and seeing whether the whole thing holds up today. This week, Melora, the one where Dr. Bashir does a passable impression of Will Riker and a spot-on impression of Geordi LaForge. I've got trivia coming up in a moment, but first... But first... I'm going to tell you how to get in touch with us. Mission Log Pod is the address to find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail, we would love to hear your voice. 323-522-5641 is the phone number to call. 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. Our show website, including discovered documents, is at missionlogpodcast.com. And please do remember... We may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. So, Melora, John, Melora. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm guessing, uh, like many episodes of Star Trek, that there is trivia tied to this episode. This episode, Melora. Ooh, yeah. Well, buckle up, Ken, because there's a little bit of trivia for this episode. Now, the story from Melora is credited to Evan Carlos Summers. And we talked about Evan before when we covered the first piece that he got teleplay credit for. That was Battle Lines. Um, he had been a writing intern during the first season of DS9, and he was invited to come back for season two. Now, you may remember from the trivia on Battle Lines, talking about Evan, that he himself was quadriplegic and in a wheelchair and he did some extraordinary things in his life, like his documentary, The Seeker, from 2005, in which he does a cross-country motorcycle trip. And uh, sadly, we lost Evan in 2010. Now, the teleplay for this episode is credited to Evan, to Stephen Baum, to Michael Piller, and James Crocker. It's a lot of names, and it might lead you correctly to assume that there are a lot of hands, a lot of changes, and maybe some trouble getting this script into shape for the final filmed episode. Evan had been kicking around the idea, but what he handed in wasn't accepted by Ira Stephen Bear. Stephen Baum took it upon himself to redraft it, though, and it was closer to what the production wanted, but it still took Michael and James Crocker to get it into final shape. There were many changes, of course. Some basic ideas stayed the same, though. Evan was writing from personal experience. It wasn't easy to get around even on the set of DS9 in a wheelchair. He originally didn't have Melora in the exoskeleton, though, and he wanted more character accommodation in people coming to her, like Cisco and Ops. So he didn't want our characters to seem foolish or incompetent in working with her at all. Now, ultimately, some of the key points stayed. Uh, Evan wrote this as a sort of answer to TNG's episode Ethics. You remember that one, Ken? That's the one where Worf uh, has his spine broken and he decides that he would rather die than live like that. Um, so 
Evan wanted a story in which the disability did not end someone's life, and he wanted the character to be presented with a choice where she decides to live as she is. And yes, interestingly, there had been the idea of DS9 science officer originally being from a low gravity world, but ultimately it would have been cost prohibitive to do a bunch of wire work every time you wanted to show her in that environment. This episode was directed by Wienrich Kolbe, journeyman Trek director. We just talked about him with The Homecoming and The Siege. And let's talk about some ship names, shall we? The USS Orinoco, named after the massive river that flows through Venezuela and Brazil out to the Atlantic Ocean. I believe we've also touched before on the Yellowstone, the National Park, the river, take your pick. And we have a reference here to The Little Mermaid by Hans Christian Andersen, first published in 1837. The story of a mermaid who decides to give up her identity in order to have a relationship with an air-breathing, land-dwelling human didn't exactly have a fairy tale ending, though, as is referenced in this episode. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, Ken, there might have been a cartoon version of that with a different ending. Um, um, see, the thing is, I actually, it's funny. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's Hans Christian Andersen, so I assume it sort of ends poorly for everybody. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, I'm such a, like, you know, Disney kid, mm-hmm. or was such a Disney kid. Of course, I was like, I think I was 19 when The Little Mermaid came out. I don't, I don't know how The Little Mermaid ends. I know how the Disney version ends. And oh. yes, everybody does live happily ever after. And I got to figure when this hit the air in like 94. Right? Yeah. 93, yeah. 94, somewhere around there. Yeah. Like when she says, does everybody live happily ever after? Most people watching Deep Space Nine would have been like, yes. <laughs> right, right. Okay, well, I'll give you the nutshell version at the end of the Hans Christian Andersen version. Really? The nutshell? You're not going to give me the crab shell version of oh, it? Oh, Come on. Okay. Yeah. 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 Uh, at the end of the Hans Christian Andersen story, uh, uh, the prince is actually married to a, a human woman, and uh, the Little Mermaid is not part of that picture at all. And uh, she dissolves into sea foam, and then her spirit sort of ascends, and then she is tasked with like three hundred years of uh, helping people in this spirit mermaid form before she can go off to uh, the, the the kingdom and the afterlife. But then she lives happily ever after. <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah, I'm not saying it's totally not a happy ending. It's just not the ending we assumed was going to be the happy ending if you had only seen the Disney version. Let's talk about guest stars, shall we? Don Stark plays Ashrock. We have seen his actual face before, minus the nose, he was Nicky the Nose in the holodeck scene in the movie First Contact. We have Peter Crombie here as Fallot Cot. Oh, sure, sure, you might know him as Crazy Joe from several episodes of Seinfeld, but Peter has a lot of feature film appearances to his name, too. He was in the Sean Connery film Rising Sun, plus the remake of The Blob, and he had a role in the 1995 film Seven. Now, the title character, Melora, is played by Daphne Ashbrook, She did prep for this role using a wheelchair, particularly at a mall, and noting how difficult it was not just for her to get around, but how much she felt like she got ignored by people there. So interesting experience for her if you read interviews with her talking about production on this particular show. She is the sister of Dana Ashbrook, well-known for Twin Peaks, and she had recurring roles on The O.C., Jag, Falcon Crest, and just a ton of shows. 
but she is probably best known to sci-fi fans as Dr. Grace Halloway in Doctor Who. Which one was that? Well, it was the 1996 TV movie starring one-time Dr. Paul McGann. And most recently, she has been a regular on the show Hollywood Heights. Dr. Bashir is very excited. He has a new friend coming to the station. Or maybe not. Prologue. Dr. Bashir and Jadzia Dax are preparing for the arrival of Ensign Melora Pazlar, an Alasian who is on a cartography mission to the Gamma Quadrant. Interesting thing about the Alasian homeworld, it has extremely low gravity, and the people there have evolved without the musculature needed to operate in quote-unquote normal gravity environments. To help her out, DS9 has ramps put in, and Bashir has crafted a wheelchair according to Melora's specifications, with a few modifications of his own. O'Brien has been working overtime, too, designating an area of Melora's quarters with microgravity so she's got a place a little more like home. Arriving on the Yellowstone, Melora walks into the airlock, aided by an exoskeleton and a walking stick. It's not a particularly easy task for her, but she's greeted by Dax and Bashir and her new wheelchair, which she immediately notices has been modified. Between that, being told that she can't just pilot a shuttle into the Gamma Quadrant on her own tomorrow, and the implication that she might need a hand with things, seems like we're off to a bit of a tense start. Act 1. In his bar, Quark is cutting a deal. He'll get 199 bars of gold-pressed latinum by selling 42 of the rings of Paltris to a guy called Ashrock. They're about to have a drink over the deal when a looming figure enters the bar, someone from Quark's past eight years ago. His name is Fallot Cott, and he matter-of-factly states that he's there to kill Quark. Dax and Bashir are briefing Commander Sisko on Melora's request to take a runabout on her own when Melora shows up, a little bristled at the idea that she's being discussed, and that the discussion, in her interpretation, makes it sound like she's a problem, or that she's ill. Sisko assures her that it's nothing of the sort. It's a personnel update, and they're doing their jobs. Melora explains that she's probably a bit defensive since this whole thing is a challenge, she left her homeworld to explore, something almost no one there does, and using the chair, her stay at DS9, all of this, these are obstacles that she is perfectly glad to overcome on her own. She wants to work alone, too. It'll be easier, but Sisko insists that Dax is going with her. Back in her quarters, Melora has unwound from the day by having a little zero-G spin when Dr. Bashir comes by for a visit. This time he's Julian, though not the doctor. He gently calls her out. You know, you seem to relate to people by going on the attack and putting everyone around you on the defensive. In fact, you're so good at it, you probably don't realize you're doing it all the time. So let's cut through the nonsense and go have dinner. Surprisingly, she says yes. Act 2. Quark is doing what he can to not get killed, pulling out all the stops to wine and dine caught, it's not really working, though. Cot isn't interested in fine dining or dabo girls. He tells Quark he's there for revenge. Let's see how Bashir and Melora's dinner is coming along. 
They drop by the brand new Klingon place, and Bashir orders up all kinds of Klingon delicacies. Melora sees what's coming, though, and chastises the chef in his own language for serving up rach that isn't quite alive enough. Their dinner conversation is light and personal, and it seems the barriers are breaking down. Julian then talks about becoming a doctor after being unable to help a young alien girl when he was a boy. Well, that is after a failed attempt to become a tennis player. These two really seem to connect, but Melora has an early mission the next morning and needs to call it a night. Bright and early, Dax makes her way to find the ensign, but she's not in her quarters. The computer reports that Melora is in a supply area, but when Jadzia arrives, she's hurt. Seems that Melora took a fall and her assistance devices were impeded. She'll have to go to the infirmary, and that will set the mission back by a day. In the infirmary, it's time for another talk. Dr. Bashir can get her back into shape from her spill, but it's more than that. She went off to do something on her own when it would have been just as easy to get some help. The good doctor explains that they know they can rely on her. Now can she learn that it's perfectly okay for her to rely on them too? On the way back to her quarters... The two talk about some neuromuscular medical studies done with low-gravity species decades ago. The test didn't go anywhere, but Bashir says he's been looking into it, and you never know. There might be something to look into that could help her walk in a higher-gravity environment without assistance. Intriguing. Hold that thought. Now in her quarters, Melora invites Bashir to unwind as she does, with a spin around the room in microgravity. She's perfectly at ease and graceful. He's clumsy, but having fun. And then as she steadies him, the two share a kiss. Act 3. With the mission back on, Melora and Dax have taken off into the Gamma Quadrant, and Melora puts on a little music. She starts asking Jadzia for personal advice, which comes down to, do you think a couple of Starfleet officers from different planets with different gravitational needs could ever be a thing. Jadzia is encouraging. All kinds of romantic relationships happen and should happen because think of the alternative. Back on DS9, Quark checks in with Odo. Yeah, remember all those times Quark tried to get one over on Odo? Odo remembers. So when Quark says he needs some help with Fallot Cot, Odo already knows the score. A deal gone bad, Cot spent eight years in a Romulan prison camp. Cork is in the middle. There's a kind of smug enjoyment that creeps onto Odo's face. But he tells Cork he'll do his job, which presumably means keeping an eye on Cot. Bashir has been at work while Melora was away, and now that she's back, he's got something to show her. The work on neuromuscular adaptation, the stuff that was abandoned 30 years ago, well, it seems like it'll work. That means no more servo controls and no more chair. Act 4. Remember when Odo told Quark he'd do his job? Well, he does. He calls in Cot and says, Yep, I hate Quark too, but you're not going to kill him on my watch. Cot says he's not going to kill Quark, which doesn't entirely convince Odo. Can't lock him up for just being threatening, though. Odo will keep watch, but he suggests Quark wear a comm badge just in case. 
and Odo says he'll buy a piece of his body if, in fact, he does get killed. In the infirmary, that experimental procedure on Melora is going well. Bashir has crossed the T's and dotted the I's. She doesn't sense anything at first, but then she realizes she can actually move her leg under her own power. It's a breakthrough. She insists on taking Commander Sisko her mission report, and there she emerges in ops, standing up just fine. Until she isn't. She starts to lose her balance, and Bashir explains that it will take a series of treatments as her body adjusts. She'll go back to her quarters, and no microgravity for now. It could confuse what's happening with neural pathways adjusting themselves. In his quarters, Quark is ready to retire for the night, too, but he has an uninvited guest. Fallot Cot, of course. But like a good Ferengi, Quark starts a negotiation process. He does have the inside track on 199 bars of gold-pressed latinum, after all. Act 5. Melora didn't sleep too well. The adjustment to normal gravity isn't an easy one, and she's in a bit of pain. Plus, she missed the comfort of zero-g rest. Bashir says it's something she'll have to get used to, since it could be dangerous to move back and forth from one environment to another, at, at least while they're still trying to finish the procedure. Second day of her mission, and Melora's expressing her second thoughts to Dax. She really wouldn't be able to go back home other than for a short visit, and that makes Dax think of the story of The Little Mermaid. The original story had a slightly different ending than the Disney film. On DS9, Quark is cutting a deal. Ashrock, meet Cot. Cot, meet Ashrock. 199 bars of gold-pressed latinum are exchanged, and Cot pulls out a weapon. He shoots Ashrock, then forces Quark to grab the bags and leave with him. Looking for an escape, they happen to arrive at an airlock where Dax and Melora have just docked their shuttle, the Orinoco. He forces them back inside, and off they go. When Sisko sees what's going on, he calls for a tractor beam, but Kot says he'll kill a hostage if they don't disengage. He aims his weapon at Melora and fires. With no choice, Sisko orders a tractor beam to be cut while he, O'Brien, and Bashir beam over to the Rio Grande and give chase to the Orinoco through the wormhole. During the chase, Melora starts to regain consciousness and pulls herself quietly to the rear of the ship. Once there, she turns off the gravity and uses that as her advantage to distract, then take down Kot. With engines down and Quark holding Kot at gunpoint, Sisko and Bashir beam over to assess the damage. Everyone is okay. Time to go back to DS9. Over a meal, Bashir posits that the phaser shot didn't kill Melora because of all the neurostimulants in her system. Could just be a lucky side effect of the treatments she's been getting. Treatments that she has decided to stop. Sure, she could walk on land without assistance, but would that change who she is? Would she be Elysian anymore? She's grateful, though that her experience with Bashir taught her that she could open up a little and let others be a part of her life, too. And then that Klingon chef serenades the two as we arrive at the end. You left out the most important part of the episode. <laughs> What's the most important part of the episode? Packleds. Oh, there are packleds in this episode. Uh -huh, the people who came yeah. up to the Klingon restaurant after uh, Julian and Melora left, mm -hmm. they were a pair of packleds. 
which of course means next week DS9 will be under the control of Packlets, <laughs> which is fine because Packlets, John, Packlets. You love the Packlets, Ken. I, I, I will love never, the Packlets, John. I will John. never take that away from you. Here's the thing. That plate yeah. of, of rock, the half-dead rock that the, that the chef threw at the back wall, uh, what do you think the Packlets got? That's, he just went back there. I'm sure that, that that's what they got. I, I believe the Packlets probably came up and said, Make us food. And that was it. <laughs> yeah. And it's fine. He probably gave them salad. He probably gave them lettuce. And they're like, you know, mm-hmm. now we will go. And it's it's all great. Yeah. Yeah. Packlids, John. Packlids. Uh, uh, yeah. They're, they're great customers until they stick around and take over your technology and frustrate you to the extent that you just have to leave. Yeah. I kind of love the idea that next week's episode, I, I, I know it won't, mm-hmm. but I love the idea that next week's episode would be. DS9 is run by Packlets because it's what they do. Uh, it's what they do. They're the worst. <laughs> the they're worst. the best. <laughs> hey, uh, Dax hasn't seen a wheelchair in 300 years. Dax, let me introduce you to Captain Pike uh, or, or Admiral Jameson. Now, look, I realize that at this point they're both dead, but I'm just saying they're they're around. Well, you don't see that many. No, and yet, no. yeah, Jadzia. Well, Dax anyway, not Jadzia, but mm-hmm. Dax has been all over the place. Yeah, everywhere. it is kind of weird. Yes, that that uh, that Dax would not have seen any. I do have a question. Um, why would Julian modify the chair that uh, you know Malora uses wherever she goes, and specifically requested? I yeah, yeah, I know that bad form. Not cool. Not cool. No, I, I don't think so. Yeah. I mean, and she's, you know, she does the whole, I'll have to adjust, whatever. And obviously they're setting her up to be sort of a spiky character, you know, right from the beginning. Mm-hmm. But if I take the trouble and be like, you know, if you went to a restaurant, mm-hmm. and I know this is a very different thing, but if you went to a restaurant and said, you know, um, you know, make sure there are no pine nuts in anything. And the chef's like, oh, but, but pine nuts really add something. So I'm going to go ahead and put them in there. <laughs> right. And it turns out it's because, you know, you're allergic to pine nuts, say. I mean, she took very specific care to say specifically what she wanted. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, anybody, be it Cisco, be it Dax, be it Julian, anybody who's like, yeah, but they don't know what they're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Now, now, to be fair, we, we don't know. I mean, your point is well taken. Uh, uh, to be fair, we don't know exactly what those adjustments are. Now, let's say that it that was a, a more comfy seat. That, that might have just been Dr. Bashir trying to, to look out for the uh, essentially somebody who is under his care in this respect. Mm. But let's say it's something like uh, like a turbo boost on the wheels. Now, you don't do that. You don't do right. that. You don't endanger right. somebody with something like that. The impression that I got actually was that it had to do with the control mechanism because that's immediately what she starts fiddling mm-hmm. with. Yep. Yep. Which I can see why, oh, this is how you get around, but I've changed it. Yeah. Yeah. Have yeah, fun. Not, not, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I just what made can it I so say that... except you're welcome to yeah. keep quoting Disney for yeah. the day because why not? <laughs> I just I just made it so that, uh, you know, left makes you go right and right makes you go left. It's no big deal. You'll you'll adapt. <laughs> yeah. You'll get it. Why? Yeah. 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 Um, speaking of Bashir, uh, uh, okay, uh, he helped her walk. She helped him fly. Bashir, dude, you work in space. I know, right? You work in space. Right. Starfleet goes into space, but apparently they don't train people on zero-G or low-gravity environments or situations. Even though there are controls in the shuttlecraft to turn off the gravity, but it's like, oh, no, no, don't touch that, because then we might float. Okay, so right now, in the room that you're in, and in the room that I'm in, uh, if you had a button... 
that you could turn gravity on and off? How many times a day would you flip that thing on and off? Because I'm thinking at least 10. <laughs> I think you're probably right. 10. Yeah. But no, nobody in Starfleet. Because we've, we've gone beyond such silliness, John. Uh, yeah. We've gone so far beyond such silliness that we forget that, you know, as space is weightless. Or you can be weightless in space or whatever. And, and look, it, Picard even says to Worf and uh, and Ensign Deadmeat in uh, First Contact, <laughs> you guys remember your anti-grav training, right? Before nope. they put on their space. <laughs> Sorry, old <laughs> man. They quit that about five years after you went through the academy because nobody knows anything about zero G. Just ask my good friend, Dr. Julian Bashir. <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. By the way, exactly. uh, no, I mean, not to get too... But then if he's not used to zero G, no way mm-hmm. the messing around that they're doing in her quarters is going to go well. Oh, no, no. I mean, there's I, just no way that that... He bruises a right. plenty. Good thing yeah. he's a doctor. Yeah. Yeah. That... <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, just really have to point out, uh, Quark has 42 of those rings, not 47. Yeah. Are we off that now? I don't know, man, but I'm a little disappointed and surprised. So... Yeah, maybe. I look. I, I just. I imagine that forty-seven is going to show up plenty more times. Maybe this was just one too many for them to do. Somebody wrote forty-seven in the script, and somebody else was like, "No, no, no, no. Just, just make it forty-two. <laughs> Can we just stop time. with the forty-seven, please? Can we just stop with it? Yeah, yeah. Um, it, there's a it, there's a lot uh, of character stuff, obviously, to talk about in here. Cisco has a very quick moment with Melora that that I like that I wanted to point out. Um, when she comes into that first meeting and she she is sort of bristly, she is a, a, a little tough, a little defensive, and she explains kind of what she's been through to get there and how she works alone and et cetera. And, and Cisco, before he questions anything or gives her an order, and the order is you will be working with Dax, he prefaces and he he's great in that whole scene, but he prefaces it by just saying, "You must be proud of your accomplishments and not as a challenge, not as a a, a question or anything. I pointed out because it was a nice moment that acknowledges who she is and where she's coming from It's an empathetic moment that was so quick that you can you can sort of let it pass by hmm. um, but it, it was a nice uh, it was a nice quick moment to have in that scene you want to talk about something that's maybe not exactly right although i think we'll get let's to it, it more in the next segment oh let's um, do it i couldn't help but think of dr leah brahms in this episode really? or really holodeck leah brahms not because of her but because like because when melora is coming on i mean i feel certain that julian knew her middle name before she got there his like infatuation huh. his study it felt to me like Jordy and leah brahms when they met Really? Yeah. Really? You didn't you didn't get that at all? I mean not again, not her, not Melora. Yeah, yeah. Julian. Yeah. Yeah. It uh it, it didn't to me now here's the thing. Julian has to have studied a lot about her yes. in order to do these things. Right. Um but I, I didn't I didn't get the creeps. Really? Him right off the yeah, right off the bat. No, <laughs> not, not not the way that I not the way that I did with Jordy. See, that's no. weird to me. Do you think it's because he didn't spend time in the holodeck with with a pretend Melora before she got there? Because the impression that I got was yeah, I think that would have been terrible. Yeah. Well, the impression that I got was that Julian had a crush on her before she got there, and I don't blame him. I mean, I understand. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think we've probably all done that at one time or another, where you mm-hmm. read about somebody. 
and you don't know that person, but you have a crush on them. But, you know, I, I would hope that it, it would it would be such a line, right, where it's like, I don't know, dial it back if you know they're going to be there in 10 minutes. <laughs> you know, <laughs> do you know what I mean? I yeah. mean, maybe try to treat it a bit more, a bit more, well, yeah, not to play on his being a doctor, but maybe a bit more clinically. I mean, it's cool to admire her, but I really felt like, I felt like he was drawing his initials and her initials in the margin of, you know, what passes for paper in the 24th century. Yeah, see, I, I, for whatever reason, I didn't feel that way. I thought, like, his dialogue with Dax, I, I thought it was all very on the up and up, that they were both interested, they were both intrigued, they were both kind of excited at the idea of, look, we're doing a thing. We're doing a thing to help this person. This can be the new person. There's already some excitement around the new person. Um, now, for us, Julian already has this history where he's been kind of creepy and inappropriate. And when I say kind of, I mean a lot. Right. But, you know, for whatever reason, we've kind of gotten past that a bit, at least with him and Dax. Um, I, I, got a, I got a different vibe from this episode and at least their, uh, the, their, their interaction here. I will never lose the creeps from the Jordy and Leah Brahms thing, though. Oh, no, it's okay, because they end up getting married, apparently, in one timeline. Oh, oh, dear. oh no. Oh, no. Yeah, we just, we can't. We can't. Hey, uh, let's talk about something that I know that I'm going to love, and that'll be the food in the episode. Um, I, I've never had the opportunity to use the phrase, there's a new Klingon place that's opened up, but I really hope that I can someday, because uh, that was slick. Uh, but let's talk about that food. I uh, I watched this episode uh, a couple of times, and then like one o'clock in the morning, I had to text a friend of mine who knows a thing or two about Japanese food because I was like, "Hey, what is what is that Japanese potato starch thing?" And he replied, "It's konyaku." And I swear, those noodles that they had—they they were kind of thick cut, like an udon noodle, but they had that kind of gray color and that little, little bit of speckled looking stuff in there. I, I think it was konyaku, just to give it that kind of uh, interesting color and texture that they had. Also, he pointed out wood ear mushrooms in that scene. They kind of put down the noodles and then threw on the wood ear mushrooms. So I, I'm just saying I would enjoy everything on that plate. I don't but, know what uh, I was expecting when they said they were going to a new Klingon place. I didn't expect there to actually be a Klingon cooking no, really? there. Yeah, oh, I, th I, oh, I thought it was going to oh. be like a, just like a place like... You know, sort of like an Asian fusion place that you go to that has, you know, nobody from any place that would actually... <laughs> I, I was surprised when we got there and there was actually a Klingon guy there cooking because you don't really... I mean, while we've had, you know, gach and things like yeah. that before, I don't really think about the, the whole Klingon food thing. I will say, because no people listening to this podcast, you are not the only ones who have heard about this potato starch noodle <laughs> thing. Uh, John actually sent me pictures of it or showed me pictures of it. Mm -hmm. And uh, mm -hmm. and I'm kind of craving it now. And I've never had it before, yeah. but I'm looking at it and I'm like, that That seems like that could be really tasty. And it looks like worms. So And, and, and funny enough, you were kind of, your instinct was right that it is kind of an Asian fusion place because they got konyaku and woodier mushrooms. They're just doling out. So right. you're already on the right page there. And, but I, I kind of love this Klingon cafe owner. I, I, I love his presence. I love him throwing the food over his shoulder. I love his serenade at the end. I just, I love everything about this guy. I would eat there at least a couple of times a week if I were on DS9. See, yeah. here's the thing. I feel like we're just finding out more about me than we're actually finding about. I, <laughs> I, I love live music that I can walk away from. 
Oh, sure. If sure. I'm sitting at a table and somebody walks up and starts singing at me, I'm 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 like trying to figure out the most graceful way to excuse myself. <laughs> so I was not a huge fan of that. I mean, yes, it was a beautiful moment and all that stuff. But if he could like stay behind the counter and do that, although then, of yeah. course, I, if I want seconds, I'm going to walk up and say, hey, can you just let me know when the song's done? Because I need me some more starchy, wormy noodles, please. Well, remind me of the next time we're in Vegas to not go to Batista's for Italian food is I got the guy who's like straight out of a David Lynch film okay. with an accordion, like coming around to your table and you, you just, you're trying to find like, is there a trap door under here that I can? <laughs> From the David Lynch film, does he sing everything backwards? Yeah, it almost, it's almost as if he does, I guess. Uh, that'd yes. be awesome. Yeah. I see. I might yeah. I might pay extra for that, actually. Okay. Um, I will say, uh, in the sense of the flying effects are really good. It, it was all wire work that they had to remove then the wires frame by frame in the edit, which is a very time-consuming task. Uh, but it all looked really nice. So uh, well done for an effect on a on a TV scale there before you could just CGI it all to death. Yeah. So uh, nicely done. I got to say, there is one thing that she brings up, and it sort of goes to the mobility thing that you were talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. uh, what kind of architect would deliberately design a raised rim at the entrance of every door? She is so yeah. right. She is so like when, like every time I watch uh, a new hope, the, well, I should call it star mm. Wars because let's face it. That mm -hmm. was actually the name of the movie. Every time I watch star Wars or when I go back and watch some of the like Rocky Jones space ranger or something like that. Yeah. It, it's yeah. just like, it's like they're designing for lawsuits. Did you see, did you see, see the Orinoco flow? Did it reach? Did it beach? On the dock of DS9. So we got a little deeper into uh, character questions in the last segment than I intended to, and you've kind of got me wondering now, or then we didn't intend it to. I say I because you got me wondering now, am I watching Bashir for trouble? Am I watching mm -hmm. Bashir, like, mm -hmm. to be lecherous? Because, I mean, I feel like he was. I feel like he had a crush on her before she got there. Which, again, no fault. I mean, people do that. Yeah, that that's okay. For for somebody to have a crush, that's fine. What I, I think the worst thing that Bashir does is that he he inquires, and then he gets told no, and that he won't stop. A lot of times, yes. A lot of times. Although you yeah. could argue that she she comes on with no. I mean, that that, that is her attitude when she comes into the episode. And I kind of wonder, mm -hmm. like, he's not going to take no for an answer again. And it's a different kind of not going to take no for an answer. But here's the thing. Sometimes I just don't want to talk to people. <laughs> right? <laughs> sure. And if you yeah, keep yeah. trying to talk to me, I'm going to give you as few answers as I can or short answers as I can. And without being rude, I'm going to try to extricate myself from the situation. If I don't feel like talking, I don't feel like talking. She comes on and she, uh, he decides that she has a chip on her shoulder. And of course, we get to know throughout the episode that she does, in fact, have a chip on her shoulder. You know what? If that's how she wants to be, she should be allowed to be that way. But, you know, we can circle back on that. What I'm wondering, though, uh, getting to a more like just things TV has taught me, general hospital not included, should Julian <laughs> be performing experimental, safe, I will grant you, apparently, um, mm -hmm. you know, fine, except still experimental uh, procedures on someone that he's dating. Like, because mm -hmm. he like, he hits on her 
And and uh, she says something about doctor, and he says, "I don't know, Julian. I'm not your doctor anymore." And then they start yeah. dating, and then he starts being her doctor again. Yeah, is that? I mean, is that cool? No. Okay. <laughs> no. I right. mean, uh, for for the purpose of a 42 minute TV show um, where you've only got one doctor on board and you've only got one character who needs the doctor right now on board. Yeah, that's the way it's going to work. Mm-hmm. Primarily because we know that we won't see her again. Right. Oh, sorry. Spoiler. Ken. Oh, yeah. To, well. uh, yeah. Um, she may be in a novel with uh, Rugal, though. It's tough to say. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> Rugal and Melora and the Flying Dog. I think it was a children's novel. It was a, it was a YA novel. Well, it was actually a children's novel. Right. Yeah, in, in any other context... I, I would say no. But in any other context, this wouldn't be happening over, say, two days, which is what, what we have here yeah. as well. You know, can can we give her a chance to call her family? Can we give her a chance to kind of weigh things out a little bit, see if this is really a good idea, see if anybody else has done this? You know, it's interesting. We're short one guy. We're short one guy on this, on the, because I'm thinking, okay, who else could this be? Because Bashir needs to be the doctor who's going to find this cure for her, right? Mm-hmm. But we need a love interest as well. Well, it's not going to be Cisco because he's a commanding officer, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and that wouldn't stop Riker, but it, it is going to stop <laughs> right. uh, Cisco, right? It's not going to yeah. be Quark because he's comic relief. It's not going to be Odo because Odo's Odo, and it's not going to be uh, it's not going to be um, uh, Miles because he's married. We're short right. one guy. We're short like like uh, just yeah. a single guy. Mm-hmm. I guess it could have been Morn. Oh, there you go, Morn. <laughs> Morn. Morn likes everybody. Morn does like everybody Some more than others. Yeah. yeah, of course. Then we'd have to we'd have to give him a speaking line. <laughs> yeah, not necessarily. You know. Uh, but yeah, to to your point that it, it's a it's a weird choice, but it's the only choice. For this episode, um, so 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 be it. But yeah, I, I think that in any other context, you would have to not do that, or you, at least you'd have to address it, um, because it, that's the thing. Once he goes from being the doctor to Julian, that shift back to doctor, it's sort of like it, it's a little too casual. Like, hey, just come up to the lab, see where I work, and by the way, we'll do an experimental medical <laughs> procedure on you. <laughs> Right. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's that's a little tough. Um, but let's talk about uh, well, not necessarily their relationship yet, but but relationships because I it, still just the the idea of a long term romantic relationship in Starfleet is, is not a thing. Um, everyone's still an orphan except for Jake and Nog, but they, they're easy to get rid of for an episode or two. Um, Dax says that she. He made it work sometimes, but temporarily. You get that idea, uh, that idea from their conversation. Like, sure, I've had romantic things like here and there. Um, there is one that we're forgetting. We're forgetting about Miles and Keiko, which I mean oh, is sure. not yeah, a great yeah, yeah, yeah. relationship. Anytime we see it on TV, nope. except that we're given nope. to understand that they love each other. They're raising a kid. They've decided to live their lives together. I mean, we're, we're given to understand it's a good relationship. The only problem is it's written like a TV relationship, which, you know, is either hopelessly in love or the, or the fabulous Bickersons or the magnificent yeah. Bickersons or whatever that show or cartoon or whatever it was, was called. Yeah. Um, yeah. They tend to be written as a TV trope in a way, but in fairness, they are actually a long standing 
heck, they went from uh, from serving on a spaceship to now serving on a space station. Their their marriage has even survived, uh, you know, ch- 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 changes. Right, and at least two evacuations that uh, that we know of. Now, now here's the thing: what what a different conversation that would have been if Melora had said to Dax, "Hey, do you think that relationships and and a career in Starfleet can actually work out?" And Dax could say, uh, "Sure, Miles and Keiko, they're they're right here at the station." I'll introduce you to them later. And then um, Laura could say, no, they're next door to me. And all I hear all day long is them arguing about <laughs> breakfast and lunch and dinner. And I can't take it anymore. And socks. And socks. Yeah. 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 So, um, but no, but Dax does have a very nice line. You know, uh, uh, Melora says that even being with a different species, uh, that'd be uh, so difficult. And Dax says, when has that ever stopped anyone? Um it's she's right that when there's a connection there's a connection when there's love there's love when when people want to make it work they will make it work um but there is keiko and miles are absolutely the exception to the rule everybody else that we've seen any other character we've gotten invested in at all mm-hmm. you just assume that it has not worked out and it will not work out cisco there's a tragedy. Picard, even we see future Picard, sure, he had a, a moment of happiness with uh, with Dr. Crusher, but then that's got to end too. Right. You know? Um, we, we are led to believe that finally, after all this time, Riker and Troy got together. They're, they're going to go off into the sunset and do their thing, but it's a good thing we haven't caught up with them since. <laughs> you know? Because who knows? Who knows what that would be? But, you know, I just feel like we, we got some interesting ideas about 24th century relationships out of next gen, particularly with the Riker and Troy thing. Um, and many times with Beverly, because even though there was this mild flirtation between Beverly and Picard, Beverly could still do her own thing. And Picard did his own thing. And, and sometimes there's a Vash in the mix and sometimes there's not. Um I just feel like with DS9, we're sort of starting over again in that respect. You, you've got on the one extreme, Miles and Keiko, and then you have this sort of starting assumption that nobody else in Starfleet has anything resembling a uh, a relationship. I don't know enough people in the military, honestly, to be able to address this. I mean, I, I, I mean you hear stories all the time about people who live their lives you know, he stays, you know, stateside and takes care of the kids while she goes off and serves or vice versa. Um, I do actually have family members uh, who he and she got married, but they were, you know, both serving in different places at different times. So they would see each other on their leaves. And eventually she retired and he continued in the military. And, and to this day, he will be, you know, I'll get an email from a different continent where he is for reasons he can't tell me about. And his mm-hmm. wife's at home taking care of the dogs. Um, so I, I don't know that that's, I don't know what the rule is there though. I don't know what generally speaking happens. And I honestly don't yeah. know that, um, I don't know that uh, anybody writing on this episode would know generally speaking what happens either. I mean, the other thing is though, exactly what you're talking about. Like I said a minute ago, we're short a guy. Well, you can't quickly yeah. write a guy and have us care about the guy and have us care about the relationship and then end the whole thing. 
you can't just keep adding characters and keep adding characters. I mean, it's always going to be how many girlfriends did Kirk have? How many girlfriends did Riker have for crying out loud or, or right. you know, dalliances or, or liaisons or whatever you want to call them. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. It, on the one hand, you could look at it and say, well, this is saying something really tragic about serving in Starfleet and trying to have a romance. You could also say it's saying something very standard about television. Speaking of which. Yes. Let's talk about um, Melora's attitude when she comes in. Well, let's talk about that because um, that that's a thing to talk about. And we got an email about it, too, um, actually a few weeks before we recorded this. And, and I'll be honest, I, um, I, I saw the subject line and I read the first line of the email and then ignored it. Because I, I didn't want it to um, to shape my opinion of the episode before I watched the episode. But I'll read it here now. Um, it's from Eric, longtime Mission Log listener and somebody who uh, emails us with some regularity to chime in. Always appreciate that. Eric said, as an amputee, I found Melora to be pretty offensive. I'm not sure if the writers thought they were portraying the attitude of a typical disabled person, but I have dealt with this sort of stereotype all my life. I've never met a disabled person who behaves this way. Just wanted to get my two cents and maybe provide a bit of perspective for you when you record the mission log for this one. I'm not easily offended, and I'm pretty forgiving of things like this. After all, they were not trying to offend anyone, but that doesn't mean I'm not offended. That said, I strongly agree with the statement, your offense is not my problem, and of course the reverse is true. For me in this case, my offense is not your problem. Thank you for that, Eric. Um, I was glad to get that email and uh, glad that it will spark a bit of conversation here. But I'm also glad that I didn't read it in its entirety before I watched the episode. Uh, so, can you have a, a note here about um, Laura's attitude? Well, it's it's standard television. Yeah, and I'm not saying it's right. I mean, I think it's 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 pretty wrong. I mean, we don't get generally speaking we don't get the most nuanced treatments of uh of situations like that so often it seems to me and it's going to be to make um either the hero of the show or one of the supporting characters of the show you know better it's going to humanize them right somebody mm -hmm. comes in you know swatting people away with their cane because they can see they can do it i mean they can't see but i mean you know, they can take care of it themselves and it's going to be about mm -hmm our character breaking down their cold exterior and letting love into their life. And then by, you know, <laughs> as you pointed out, mm -hmm. yeah, uh, with the yeah. exception of things like, um, Oh golly. Um, a little house on the prairie. Mary went blind mm -hmm. and they dealt with things like that. Now don't ask me how they dealt with it because I was like eight and I don't remember, <laughs> but I mean, that was not a thing where she went blind for like an episode <laughs> and came back out of it. Um, I get what Eric is saying. It feels to me like it's an easy thing. It, 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 it feels standard for a character like this on a show like this to come in with a chip on their shoulder and to have that, you know, uh, melted or knocked off or chipped away as the episode goes on. Uh, but it's not about that character. It's about, it's sort of about glorification of our own characters, I guess, which is, I mean, which makes it interesting what you were saying about the writer being paraplegic and at the same time uh, having like five other people go, yeah, but why don't we change this and let's do that and why don't we do this other thing? Like what was his, do you happen to know, do you happen to remember what his take was, what he intended versus what hit the screen? Uh, in the very end, I mean, the, the, 
Yeah, I trust a little bit of that in the trivia. There, there's more nuance. And if you pick up uh, the, the DS9 companion, then there's a bit more. And there are interviews uh, with Evan talking about that. It's not totally off the mark. You know, he got to make the statement that he wanted to make, which, again, was the opposite of ethics, because that episode did not sit well with him at all. Um it sounds like he wanted them to be a little more collaborative from the beginning. Um, like I said, that opening set of scenes where we have uh, uh, Bashir and Dax kind of looking a little bit foolish that they would presume to, as you point out, you know, to change the wheelchair and to do these things. They're kind of taken down a peg. Mm-hmm. By doing that. Um, and, and there were specific moments that Evan wanted to play out differently. He said specifically that thing about her coming into a meeting with Cisco. He wanted Melora to come in the wheelchair and basically be faced with stairs. And then you've got to have Cisco come downstairs to meet her or move the meeting to a different place because this is a thing that happens. You know, he, he was thinking about and talking about his own experience on set where, okay, well, I can't go over there where everybody else is. So we've got to move this thing over here. You've got to come to me. Um, and not that this is a terrible tragedy. He just wanted to, to try to spell out the reality of his situation. Hmm. So there were little things like that, that, uh, that, that bothered him. But uh, that's such a tough writing thing to do. I mean, if you start off the show going, Wow, Chief O'Brien, way to put way to put ramps everywhere. Oh, oops, except for this one mm-hmm. place. Yeah, yeah, it's... yeah, 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 yeah. Well, look, I I want to go back to the this idea though about the the character of Melora because I wonder if we can and I say that rhetorically because I I think that I can separate the two halves of this character. So. You have the part of the story that it is about the person who is disabled, who has things to overcome, and is presented with a choice in the end. And that, and that is that part of the character story. The other part of the character story is the person who doesn't have the best attitude in the world, who is defensive toward people, and who misses out on the opportunity to have, hopefully, some meaningful relationships because there are all these barriers and walls there. I think that either of those character traits, those character backgrounds can exist separately or they can exist together. You can have a character who is prickly and dismissive and defensive and not marry that with somebody who is also disabled if we're telling that story. Right. And you can have somebody who is disabled. I mean, let, let's look at Jordy. You know, that, that was an attempt to add somebody who does not have conventional eyesight, so does not have all their physical abilities, uses a prosthetic device. And look, we could talk all day about the problems and benefits of Jordy as that character was written. Um, but Jordy, by all accounts, is a pretty good guy who got along with everybody in his crew and formed meaningful friendships and, and relationships. Let's not talk about Leah Brahms here. <laughs> you know? So I, I, I really get and I, I, I understand where Eric is coming from 
that, okay, here we have this opportunity to show this character. But look, the last time we saw somebody in a wheelchair, it was Admiral Jameson, and he was on a nuts mission of personal revenge. Mm -hmm. Um, And here we have somebody in a wheelchair who we start off with this abrasive relationship to to our our hero characters. Um, If that's all you're seeing that represents something meaningful to you is like, okay, well, here are these characters with disabilities, but but that's what we get, and it's a trope, as you're saying, Ken. Yeah, that would bother me. That, that would absolutely bother me. I, I, I think we know what the intention was here of the writers. The intention was to, well, expose something about our hero characters, our main characters that we'll see next week and the week after and the week after. Um and give some depth to this guest star character and give them a relationship to have with uh, with Dr. Bashir. I will say this, you know, soon after, uh, well, it's that scene where Julian comes back to her quarters and intro- reintroduces himself as Julian, not her doctor. Mm-hmm. And he, he straight up addresses her attitude to her face. And I think he does it in a really good way. I think he does it in the best way possible. Look, she's defensive and she is so practiced at putting everyone else on the defensive and he sees right through it and he's calm and collected and and reasonable about it. And I wish I could be that cool when I encounter that in real life because I think we all do. And you want to be able to say to somebody, hey, you seem to be really defensive and can't we just talk here as human beings instead of this, this barrier, this wall Um, it's TV. So it works out for him and it works out for her. But if, if we could only be so lucky in the real world. I know it is not the Cardassian way, but Ramps would really just make sense anyway. Chief O'Brien should leave them in place. Melora. A lot of times, John, we talk about why an episode is called what it is. And it turns out, and I don't know if you picked up on this, uh, this episode was actually named after the main character. Oh, wait a minute. We need to start. Well, over. the guest star oh. character. <laughs> okay. Sorry. Not yeah. the main character. Yeah. Yeah. Melora. John, it's a part of the episode where we talk about the messages, morals, and meanings. We also sometimes talk about the meanings, morals, and messages and try to figure out whether the episode holds up today as far as we're concerned. Because as I pointed out a few times, uh, we can only talk about, you know, what we see, you know, what we think. And, you know, uh, we throw this conversation out there. If that generates more conversation, awesome. So the question I have for you. We'll start with, does the episode hold up as far as you're concerned? Um, well, look, let, let me go back to our thing about uh, Bashir. And uh, is he terrible? Is he not terrible? Um, <laughs> for for all the terrible, cringeworthy moments with Bashir, I felt like it was nice to see him in something that's less so. Um, e- even if this is going to be a short relationship, I think they have really nice moments together. Uh, Siddig is very good, and so is Daphne Ashbrook. And I felt like there is a natural progression without you just feeling like Bashir is chasing all the time and being told no one coming back and being told no one coming back. 
the the point of her being cold and dismissive and defensive and bristly that's her at least at the beginning of the episode around whoever she's going to be around mm -hmm. and and what we are given here in a 42 minute slice of drama on tv is the moment when she becomes not that because otherwise we might have been watching you know 30 years of the Melora story, the Melora show in every episode, it's just her being cold and dismissive to everybody around her. But the whole point of watching the, the slice of drama that you watch is this is the day that something different happens. And this thing that is different that happens to her here is that she, she gets to open up her heart a little bit. And uh, so I, I think that was fine. And I think that, uh, that Bashir as portrayed in this is, is not, the creep that we've seen turned up to 11 in uh, in previous episodes. Now, the problem with this episode, the, the first of a few problems that I have, is that other than that, the, there's really not any plot for me to feel invested in. And and I'm okay with that sometimes, you know. Uh, I love TNG's episode Family, which is an episode purely about character and light on plot, this one doesn't work for me the way that that one did. And it's also one where the merging of the A plot and the B plot are just perfunctory. It's only happening because they're both there. So you know how I talk about story mechanics a lot, just getting from point A to point B? Well, this is one of those where I just don't like how it comes together. The A plot and the B plot overlap only because they both happen to be there. Melora saves the day precisely because of the advantage of low gravity. And it's sort of like when James Bond gets a watch with a super magnet on it. He's going to be in a position specifically to use that feature. And then it's no good and never heard of again in the next film or the film beyond that or the film beyond that or the film beyond that. That should totally be in the next James Bond movie, though. They should make, like, have, have like Q or whoever uh -huh. is Q now. Uh-huh. Just be like, yeah, no, I got you this watch, and uh, it'll let you hear somebody precisely a hundred miles away, <laughs> right. and and nothing like for the rest of the episode. Like the very yeah. end of the episode, Bond would be like, yeah, I didn't even there wasn't. How do I even know if they're precisely a hundred miles away? Right. And he was like, yeah, it really doesn't. You know, I should have. <laughs> Here, here's the one with the magnet in it. Just take that exactly. Again. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that might be more useful actually because yeah. you lose your keys. <laughs> just turn this on your keys will come flying at you though so be a little careful yeah so that, that that's what I, I i didn't like the plotting and the, the the pacing i think the characters are fine i think the characters are good but um it, it's uh, other than that it's difficult for me to find something that i that i really felt near and dear to or, or really excited about in this episode i don't think it's um it's certainly not the fault of the actors but it is one of those scripts where i think you can feel sort of the production background on this where it went from one hand to another to another to another and then it just becomes a collection of scenes and at the end they've got to figure out a way to wrap up those scenes so, yeah, unfortunately, it doesn't really hold up as an episode. I think the actors hold up fine. I think, you know, Melora is such an interesting idea, and you really wonder, well, what would they have done if they had a character on board who, who had her same abilities and disability going through a season 
or going through a couple of seasons or the whole series, you know, that, that would have been another thing to explore. But, but here we're only going to get a slice. Uh, what about you? Well, I kind of have to go back to um, Eric's email a bit. Because, I mean, when I said, well, it's TV, that doesn't make it okay, but it's a standard thing in TV. I mean, it really, it is a trope. Mm-hmm. And the problem is that may actually be the way people feel. They may think, they may think that about, like, if you're one of the Dax people who hasn't seen somebody in a wheelchair for 300 years, or you've never actually interacted with somebody, you may come away from television thinking, everybody's, you know, a hater or something like that, or everybody's got a chip on their shoulder or something, which may feel kind of weird, except I was not surprised at all at the way this episode went. She comes in surly, she leaves in love. Or she comes in surly and she leaves softened. Mm-hmm. And it's it's the wise doctor, who, by the way, has been a latch mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. all the way through. I mean, what's interesting is you say that we've seen him be sort of terrible and not take no for an answer. He's doing that here. She comes in and she's not interested. And then he comes back and says, you know, you're kind of a B word. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't say mm-hmm. it that way. You're right. He says it in sort of a smooth way. But she, oddly enough, has the right to not be friends with anybody if she doesn't want to. And 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 when he like continues to to come back and say, yeah, but, or, you know, you're mean. Well, or she wants to be left alone. But that's not okay. And that kind of bothers me a bit. Hmm. Now, that said, I watch this and I see after school special. And so, I mean, we're sort of doing like, maybe I'm expecting too much from an episode of 1990s television to be that nuanced. Maybe I'm expecting too much of anything that's going to be on broadcast television to be that nuanced. I do feel like he's refusing to take no for an answer. He's just doing it in a different way. And he's kind of shaming her in the way that she's acting. And there's nothing shameful about the way she's acting. She likes things a certain way. She wants to be left alone. The one thing that I think she should have been called out for, and she should have been called out for it hard, as an ensign, I don't believe you get to come on to another you know, place and say to all of your commanding officers, no. <laughs> right? I mean, this quasi-military organization, as you talk about, I mean, tell me where a corporal could go to a general. Yeah, listen, I know you want me to go with the platoon, but really, I work better by myself. Oh, well, probably you should have been a Navy SEAL. <laughs> I mean, you yeah, know? Right. I, mean, I mean, she comes into this, this structure and says, don't treat me any differently than anybody else. Well, I mean, remember, Cisco needed convincing last week from somebody that he's actually been working with for a year and a half to take a runabout someplace. But this person, this ensign, who he's never met before, doesn't know, chances are he's not going to sign off on letting her go to a completely different quadrant of the galaxy to do that. Mm -hmm. So I find myself in a weird place on this episode. It is such standard television. It it does deal with so many tropes, as as I've said a couple of times, that I'm not nearly as offended by it as I sound like I am. I mean, it's fine. I think Mm -hmm. in my notes, I actually say, it's fine. Because it feels like an after-school special. But the more I think about it, the, the more I wish it were better. It's not, well, I want to say it's not offensive, but Eric was offended. And Eric's in a more Melora position than I am. So it's easy for me as a, you know, <laughs> as a guy literally standing here while we record to say there's nothing offensive in this. Yeah. Because I don't live in her situation. I think one thing that might bother me about it is 
generally speaking, television like this does teach us that, you know, whatever the problem is, we can just talk about it and it's going to be okay. Right. Yeah. Right. If we, if we have a way of like, like if you just say the right thing, it's going to make the life of that person who's in the wheelchair better. And it might make it momentarily better, but it's not going to fix everything. Right. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, and yet, you know, 40 some odd years of watching TV tells me that this episode is fine. Maybe I applaud what they were trying to do, except people had been trying to do it this way for so long that maybe they should have tried something better. But it's fine. <laughs> I guess. I don't know. What about messages? Yeah, well, I mean, look, I, uh, Melora learns the lesson about opening herself up to other people, uh, re- regardless if we disagree <laughs> about how they got there. I mean, look, she... It's okay for her not to, though, right? It, I mean, it, can it, we- it, look, it, it is, but I, I mean, honestly, if you if you meet somebody, if you work with somebody... Do you at some point, uh, if they are horrible to you, uh, do you still want to try to extend the olive branch and and see them as as another person? I mean, look, I I, I had a um, right before she's I, not. I'm sorry, really quickly, she's not horrible to them though. It's just that Bashir wants to be liked, and she doesn't have to like him. She doesn't have to like him, but they they all also want to get along and have some commonality, and she. She expresses that to everybody there, including Dax and including Cisco. And, you know, I, I can't fault characters for wanting to be liked. Um, but you also can't fault characters for wanting to be left alone. Sure. No, I, I get it. But it, it, again, we're, we're only we're compressing everything here into two days. <laughs> and and it's two, it two days where people have to work together and communicate with each other. And uh, and also know that in space, a a wrong move or somebody not doing their job or not looking out for you means that somebody might get killed. So uh, ha- having a little camaraderie is not a bad thing. I um right before I moved to L.A., uh, a friend of mine in Chicago who had lived in L.A. for like, I don't know, three, four or five years, something like that. And uh, and had moved back to Chicago at some point. He he was telling me this story about how he he got out here and he hated it, and he was just miserable the entire three or four or five years that he was here. And um, he just he, he wasn't making friends and he he wasn't connecting with anybody. He wasn't happy, and it finally came down to a day or two before he was supposed to leave. And uh, he let everybody in his building know, like, hey, I'm just uh, I, I'm going to have some people over. I'm getting rid of all my stuff. And, um, yeah, just letting you know that I'm leaving. And that night, all of those people in his building that he had spent those years not talking to and not hanging out with and not connecting with, they all came over and they sat up all night until the sun came up the next morning, having drinks and playing the guitar and playing games and talking. And he realized that he had all these wonderful friends around him that he had not bothered to try to connect with and have a relationship with. And that, he said, would have completely changed his attitude about being where he was, mm. you know, so he, he put some of that on himself to say, man, if I had just come out here and made the effort and been open, my experience would have been completely different. And, uh, and I thought a little bit about him when, uh, when thinking about that message and that character journey here. Um, another message, look, uh, being independent is cool. 
uh, but so is working with and appreciating the abilities and contributions of others. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, does does Quark learn anything? No, Quark doesn't learn anything. Um, does does Bashir learn anything? Well, there, there might be something about not being presumptuous about people who are different than you, about not assuming you know what they want. Um, he should have, uh, he definitely could stand to pick up a bit of that. But uh, what else? What, what else am I missing here? <laughs> In our uh, after-school special. Well, it's interesting that you say uh, the two plots only come together because almost of happenstance in a way. But, I mean, that does seem to be one of the messages here. Melora ends up saving the day. Mm-hmm. It's her ability in low gravity, something that people who regularly you know, work and travel through space don't apparently experience. <laughs> <laughs> but it's her ability in low gravity, inherent in who she is, that saves the day. So, I mean different is not necessarily bad. They use the term handicapped at one point in the episode, and she uses it with great pain. I mean, you can tell she doesn't want to use mm-hmm. that word. And I don't want to use that word, but I'm going to because they did and because it's a quick way to say it. It's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, you have value or, or you know, and, and I don't know if that's a message for Melora. I don't think it is because Melora comes in knowing that she's good. I think it's a message for everybody else. The assumption is that she'll want to walk. The assumption is... Um, you know, that she'll want to be like everyone else. And, you know, she saves the day because she's not like everyone else. She is able to actually mm. bring something to the table that nobody else could for some inexplicable reason <laughs> while they're living in space. So, I mean, I guess one of the messages, too, I mean, that's that's sort of one, that there's value. Everyone brings something to the table. And the other thing is, I think it's okay to stay different. It's okay to be different. It's also okay to want to change. I mean, if she had decided, yes, I want to go through all this stuff and I want to walk and I never want to go back to my planet again, that's all fine. That's great. If she had decided to do that, it is also okay for her to want to be exactly who she is because who she is is not bad. Um, I mean, a little prickly at the beginning of the episode, but I argue that that's also okay. And you're right. Your friend could have had a better time in L.A., had he actually gotten to know anybody. But, you know, your friend decided to go back to Chicago, where I feel certain he's fairly happy as well. So, oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> people are fine for the most part, I guess. <laughs> Except for, you know, Quark, who got that guy thrown in prison, and then that guy who, you know, wanted to kill Quark. That happens. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. You can check out more at the Roddenberry Podcast Network, podcast.roddenberry.com. Over there, you'll find Mission Log, Women at Warp, Priority One, The Trek Files, Mission Log Live, and more on the way. If you'd like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash mission log. For more exciting Star Trek podcasts, check out Trek FM at trek.fm. And for the latest in Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. Next week, Rules of Acquisition. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. Not to be that computer, but instead of refitting her quarters, would a hollow suite, simulating low gravity, not do the trick for Melora? Someone should suggest that. 
and transmission. Podcast.roddenberry.com The Roddenberry Podcast Network.